Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions, and over all the powers of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Luke 10, verse 19. Part 1. Formative Years. Chapter 1. No Place to Rest. Not commit adultery. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Romans 13, verse 9 I saw them clobber him with kiris. I saw him scream with pain, like a victim of slaughter. I smelt fresh blood gush from his nostrils and flow on the street. I walked into the church and knelt in the pew. Lord, I love you. I also love my neighbor. Amen. Oswald and Charlie Matamele Cyril Ramaphosa was born at number 1627 Litanka Street in the Western Native Township, close to Johannesburg, on the 17th of November 1952. He was the second of what were to be the three children of Samuel and Erdmute Ramaphosa. In the Venda tradition, the names of a newborn child are granted by a senior relative, usually a woman. Ramaphosa's first name, Matamela, was chosen by his mother, and its meaning is someone who evokes speechless wonderment. This choice gives a first clue to the strong shield of love with which Ermute would surround her growing son. Ramaphosa was born just four years after the National Party had swept to power under its apartheid slogan, the NP would dominate South African politics for the next four decades, transforming racial segregation into a notorious system of population control and social engineering. It immediately began to enact a body of repugnant legislation. The Population Registration Act enforced the classification of all people into four racial categories, white, colored, Indian Asiatic and native. Mixed marriages were prohibited in 1949, and in 1950, all sexual contact between whites and other South Africans were prohibited in the Immorality Act. The Group Areas Act of 1950 applied residential segregation by race across the entire country, and the Reservation of Separate Amenities Act of 1953 segregated transport, cinemas, restaurants and sporting facilities. The period was also marked by an upsurge of opposition to racial oppression, Black mine workers launched a powerful challenge to workplace exploitation in a massive 1946 strike. In 1949, immediately after the NP's rise to power, three radical members of the African National Congress's Youth League, Nelson Mandela, Walter Sisulu and Oliver Tambo, were elected to the movement's governing National Executive Committee. By the year of Ramaphosa's birth, the ANC and its allies in the South African Indian Congress were able to launch a major passive resistance campaign, and in 1955, the movement and its allies met in Cliptown, close to Johannesburg, and adopted the Freedom Charter. This document, which was to become the central unifying text of the liberation movement, began with a memorable assertion. South Africa belongs to all who live in it, black and white. And no government can justly claim authority unless it is based on the will of the people. 
The nationalists, however, were determined to re-establish control over the urban black population growth and embarked on what they called a stabilization strategy. They destroyed squatter camps, purified white neighborhoods, and created new townships far from white residential areas. This program, like the NP's election victory, was partly a reaction to the growth of the black population in urban areas, itself the result of an extended wartime economic boom. During the war, an export-led economic bonanza had brought about a relaxation of segregation as rural immigrants, Ramaphosa's parents among them, rushed to take up jobs in the booming economy. Between 1936 and 1946, Africans in urban areas multiplied almost threefold to 390,000. Black trade unions blossomed and skilled jobs were no longer the reserve of whites. Johannesburg was at the epicenter of this great industrial and social transformation. As the black workforce swelled, shantytowns sprang up around the city and existing African locations, such as Western Native Township, became desperately overcrowded. This township had first been established in 1918 on the site of a brickfield, and in places it had rows of orderly housing. In the boom, it developed a burgeoning and fluid population, much of it living under temporary shelter and in unsanitary conditions. Almost every piece of land was occupied, with backyard shacks squeezed between brick houses and the acrid smoke from thousands of wood and coal fires filling the air. Summer storms turned the roads into mud sheets. The township was also a place of great cultural and political vibrancy, and prominent African families such as the Wundlers and the Motlanas lived there. It was, moreover, immediately adjacent to the legendary neighborhood of Sophiatown, which was home to many of the country's most powerful black political and business dynasties. Here a cosmopolitan and highly educated elite of doctors, teachers and journalists rubbed shoulders with famous churchmen, artists and writers, as well as with crooks and gangsters. For the Ramaphosa family, there were other, more everyday compensations for Western Native Township's economic limitations. A population described officially as non-European embraced almost every race and ethnicity, living together in a common community. The Ramaphosa family's immediate neighbors, for example, called themselves colored and spoke Afrikaans, while other nearby households contained speakers of Zulu, Sisutu, and a wide variety of other languages and dialects. Cyril's first education at Mabitlani Primary School was conducted in Swana. As a small child, Cyril, his older sister by four years, Ivy, and even his younger brother by five years, Douglas, were all to learn this great variety of languages from their playmates, and they felt entirely comfortable switching from one language to another. It is not simply childhood romanticism to remember, as Douglas Ramaphosa does, that theirs was a happy home in a lively and cosmopolitan neighborhood. Soon after Cyril was born, the 1953 METS Committee determined that all freehold townships should be cleared of black occupants. The residents of Western Native Township, Sophiatown, Newclare and Martindale were to be relocated, if necessary by force, to new and more distant black residential settlements. Western Native Township was earmarked for development as an industrial area. In the technical language of one land use planner, the scheme provided for the transfer of non-Europeans from the western native townships to Meadowlands, 
will clear some of the worst slums of Johannesburg and will concentrate the area of non-European residents to the south of the mining belt, where industry may be expected to develop as the mines are exhausted and abandoned. A happy relationship between place of work and place of residence for both European and non-European workers will be achieved by the use of the southern part of the clear area for industry and the northern part for the rehousing of the poorer European workers. With Africans concentrated in properly laid out townships, the planner continued, it will be relatively easy to provide adequate transport facilities to the manufacturing belts. The Parastatal Council for Scientific and Industrial Research, the CSIR, and the National Building Research Institute even went so far as to draw up a standard template for the design of low-cost four-room houses for relocated Africans. Such four-room houses continue to dominate the landscape of Soweto and much of the rest of the country to this day. Alongside the technical demands of town planning, the National Party was elaborating a doctrine of racial differentiation and African retribalization. The NP's electoral victory in 1948 resulted in part from white dismay at the black influx into formerly white residential areas and jobs. The underlying philosophy of the regime was shifting, however, and no longer rested upon the idea of a hierarchy of races in which whites were at the top and Africans were at the bottom. Instead, the notion was emerging that Africans should have their own forms of self-government, their own residential areas, and their own native homelands, and that the African population of the country needed in consequence to be separated into what were viewed as distinct ethnic groups for this purpose. While the immediate motivations for the forced removals of Africans from areas designated as belonging to whites were mostly economic and social, apartheid's emerging second phase represented a change of ideological direction. This would ultimately lead to removals of incorrectly located black people, the creation of Bantu stands and the deliberate retribalization of Africans. In its early years in Johannesburg, the NP's project was to have its greatest impact through the creation of what became to be known as Soweto. Many Africans, lucky enough to hold rights to live and work in white South Africa, and so in possession of a pass or dompas, were settled in newer, racially segregated townships distant from the white residential areas. Initially formed when the city authorities relocated African and Indian workers from the margins of the city to Cliptown, the southwestern townships of Pimville and Orlando East were created in the mid-1930s. It was the economic transformation of the 1940s, the demand for homes for Africans manning the booming production lines and factories, as well as a growing tide of refugees dispossessed of their land by racist legislation that led to the emergence of modern-day Soweto. The area remained a dormitory township rather than a city in its own right, and economic activity was strictly regulated. The main occupations were self-employment in small shops, eating houses, butcheries and roadside, or house-to-house hawking of milk, vegetables and small goods. As a repository for Africans from all manner of backgrounds and occupations, Soweto was inevitably starkly divided by class. Today, wealthy suburbs like Deepcliff Zone 5 and Protea Glen rub shoulders with poor formal suburbs and informal settlements such as Power Park and Elias Motswaledi. This pattern emerged as early as the 1950s with the creation of middle-class enclaves such as Dube. In the 1950s, Soweto was increasingly marked by a second kind of division that resulted from apartheid policy, strict 
ethnic segregation. As early as 1954, 10,000 serviced sites were laid out in a segregated pattern. Following a loan of 6 million rand to the state by Anglo-American magnate Ernest Oppenheimer, intended to stimulate the provision of more houses, a housing boom exploded. The 24,000 new housing units constructed in a period of less than five years were set in new townships zoned along ethnic lines, Naledi, Tladi and Piri for Sisutu and Tswana speakers, and Zola, Zondi, Jabolani and Mdeni for Zulu and Xhosa speakers. Tsonga and Venda speakers were obliged to settle in Chiawelo, or Chiawelo in the Tsongan spelling, this deliberate retribalization of African society immediately affected the Ramposa family. When forced to leave Western Native Township in 1962, they were obliged to move to Chiawelo, and the Ramposa children had to leave behind the happy multicultural milieu of their first home. Chiawelo's location and limited services reflected the low priority attached to its inhabitants. More than 35 kilometers from the job opportunities of central Johannesburg, it was grim and unappealing. Chiawelo, meaning place of rest or remaining in harmony, was built on the site and service model. New arrivals were provided with a drain stand and water and sanitation were made available. The conventional housing model was a four-roomed house in which it was normal to find ten people living at any time. The township as a whole contained perhaps 4,000 houses. Chiawelo was to become an increasingly bleak and unprepossessing place as the violence of the apartheid state intensified. Especially after 1976, citizens boycotted the illegitimate apartheid local government and refused to pay local government taxes. In the absence of waste collection, the streets became dirty and rat-infested. A small hillock in the middle of Chiawelo, around which the young Cyril had to negotiate to meet his friends, the mountain of Kopi, became a dumping ground for rubbish and a home for criminals, gangsters and rapists. This was a small and bleak world in which to grow up and reach maturity, and until his mid-teens Ramaphosa's experience of the world outside his neighborhood was limited. Chiawelo was a marginalized backwater in a Soweto which was itself separated by a gulf of distance and money from the excitement and wealth of Johannesburg. If Ramaphosa's primary school years were clouded by poverty and apartheid discrimination, there were powerful counteracting forces at work that would allow him to transcend his circumstances. The most important among these was Cyril's immediate family. Ramaphosa was born into a widely respected and very stable household, and his parents were renowned in their community for their strength of moral character. Cyril's father, Samuel Mundedzi Ramaphosa, universally known as Sergeant Ramaphosa, had become a policeman in the year that Cyril was born. He grew up in the Sebasa area of Eastern Venda, where he'd been schooled in a conservative mission school at Kalava. In Soweto, he was stationed in the Morocco police station close to home. A job of this kind provided a reliable, if relatively modest, salary. After the political unrest in Soweto in 1976, policemen came to be identified as agents of the oppressor and their lives came under threat. Even in those darker days, however, according to a family friend, no one ever dreamt of counting Sergeant Ramaphosa as one of the enemy. During Cyril's childhood, the sergeant saw himself as a community policeman, and he was evidently a pillar of the local society, widely respected, 
called upon to resolve conflicts between neighbours and acknowledged for his wisdom and good judgment. As was often true of vendors and shangans, Samuel Ramaphosa was able to transcend the ethnic tensions that sometimes intruded into township conflicts because of his ability to speak all of Soweto's languages with such fluency. Cyril's father also set up a burial society called Kalava after the area of his birth for his homeboys. Such burial societies provided insurance against the unexpected expense of a funeral by covering the exorbitant costs of transporting a body to vendor for burial. They also functioned as social groups through which family problems could be mulled over and community issues might be debated. While the sergeant was widely admired, he was undoubtedly a conservative man with regard to discipline and respect for the law. Cyril was his father's pride and joy. The streets of Soweto were a tough playground for young men. Gangsterism was rife, and the gangsters were the role models for many of Cyril's school peers. In 1957, for example, more than 50 people were killed in battles between gangsters, the Zulus and the Russians, in the nearby and more affluent township of Dube. Yet Cyril had taken a different path, towards decency and Christianity. Not only had he refused to follow these negative role models, but he himself became an inspiration for others. Cyril later claimed that he had learnt a great deal from his father. People would come home very angry at the injustices and also pointing fingers at what policemen were doing, but he was one of those policemen who was highly respected in the community where we lived, and people would throng into our home with problems. And later in life, in the trade unions and that type of situation, the patience to be able to listen to people and deal with their problems, I think I learned from our father. Samuel Ramaphosa confided in his eldest son from a very young age. For Cyril's younger brother Douglas, the two possessed a mutual respect unusual between different generations. They seemed to share the same outlook. They carried themselves in the same way and they walked with the same dignified bearing. They even looked exactly alike. Samuel Ramaphosa's pride in his son was palpable, but as the years passed, he must have become increasingly concerned about the direction Cyril had chosen. Yes, the young man was a fine and upstanding member of the community who spurned the gangsterism that surrounded them and encouraged others to follow a good Christian path. On the other hand, Cyril was also an activist who moved more and more in the troubled domain where Christianity and politics intersected. Cyril's father would no doubt have had to explain the behavior of his sons to his colleagues at the police station in Morocco. Rams Ramashia, who later became chairman of BP Southern Africa, had glimpses of Cyril's father's fears and hopes. Samuel Ramaphosa was a friend of Ramashia's father, and he was a frequent visitor to the small herbalist store that the Ramashia family ran in Chiawelo. The sergeant was convinced that Cyril could be coached or steered away from the dangerous world of politics while retaining his commitment to God. Nevertheless, his father was torn by a dilemma. His son was morally upright, and for this he was proud. But he was also an activist, and the sergeant knew what his colleagues in the police were capable of. He feared for his son's life. Cyril's brother Douglas detected a more ambiguous range of feelings in his father. Samuel was not just a policeman, but also a man with a keen interest in politics. He would tell Cyril stories about the words and exploits of Nelson Mandela and the ANC Youth League, and his attitude towards the ANC was broadly positive. In Douglas's eyes, Samuel understood what Cyril stood for, and he respected it. 
He never discouraged Cyril from political activism for this reason. When his eldest son was detained, Samuel reacted with a quiet stoicism. Cyril's mother, Ermute Munyadizwe Ramaphosa, nay Nechid Sivani, was the other key influence on Cyril's young life. Ermute had a very similar background to Samuel, being raised in Chitasini, a missionary settlement in the west of Vendor, about seven kilometers from Louis Trechard, now Mercado. She received a missionary education that not only instilled Lutheran values, but also equipped her unusually well for formal employment. She was a major community activist and emerged as a stabilizing force in both the family and the local community when Samuel died in the late 1980s. She was also enterprising. In the western native township, Ermute started selling liquor from the house, a common source of income for women of initiative. Indeed, Douglas Ramaphosa's very earliest childhood memory is of his mother exchanging liquor for money in the front room of their house. She continued to sell liquor in Chiawelo and later became a domestic worker in the then salubrious suburb of Hilbra. In later years, she secured work with Arlec Engineering as an administration clerk, employment of a kind that was unusual for a woman of her generation and background. Erdmutter adored Cyril almost without qualification and surrounded him with a shield of love and protection. Unlike Samuel, she quite evidently believed that some of Cyril's friends were a bad influence on him, leading him astray into the world of politics. She ran a strict household and instilled a strong sense of personal discipline in Cyril. The young schoolboy was always exceptionally well-mannered, clean, well-groomed and well-presented. He never failed in his domestic chores, feeding the dogs punctiliously, cleaning the kitchen thoroughly, and doing whatever other housework was required of him, not grudgingly, but with patent enthusiasm. He was, moreover, extremely diligent in his studies, and on his move to high school at the age of 15, he was to go into the top stream of the year. Until her death in June 2001, Cyril's mother would always keep a watchful eye on his activities. When his friend, the charismatic evangelist Caesar Molibazzi, visited the Ramaphosa house in the late 1970s, Edmute would wait until Cyril had left the room before asking, Is he behaving? In later years, as his political career progressed, she became increasingly concerned for his safety and did not like him to be in the political spotlight. In 1993 and 1994, when shots were fired at Ramaphosa on two occasions and a plot by right-wing extremists to assassinate him was uncovered, she desperately prayed that he would abandon politics. Meanwhile, she loved to watch her Cyril on television and would comment on and grade each of his appearances. At the Lutheran church in Chiawelo, where the family attended services, she would regularly lead prayers for her son. When they were finished, she would call Cyril on his cell phone, no matter where he was, and tell him that prayers had been made on his behalf. He was always reminded in this way that others were concerned for his well-being and loved him. Ramaphosa's parents were unusual in their relatively high levels of education, having both reached standard six in their missionary schools. They also shared a common approach to religion and to the upbringing of their children, and they sought to find the best for their children in terms of food and clothes. They were sensitive and intelligent parents 
who understood how to moderate and channel the growing political anger of their children. Their emphasis, above all, was on education. Like many children whose parents had emerged from poverty, the young Ramaphosa children were always told that their parents would sacrifice anything to ensure them the best possible education. A thorough schooling, they believed, would protect them in increasingly difficult times. In this home, in contrast to many others, the daughter Ivy was accorded as much respect and opportunity as her brothers, and she became a stable and confident individual. When Ivy became pregnant and had to stop school to have her first child, her parents were profoundly disappointed. But they were not angry. They were saddened that she had not achieved the level of education that would allow her to secure a career or pursue independent opportunities of her own. Douglas, the youngest of the three children, was to become the most difficult. He was to be the most aggressive and uncompromising in his rebellion against the injustices of the social order. This was in part a matter of generations. The five years that separated Douglas from Cyril were an age in terms of political repression, and Douglas was a product and instigator of the student politics of the 1976 uprising. But the difference between the two was also temperamental, with Douglas unable to accommodate and manage his intolerance of the injustice that surrounded them. The relationship between Douglas and Cyril was never easy. When Douglas would see Samuel and Cyril confiding closely in one another, he must have felt excluded. Edmutta doted on her older son. Cyril, moreover, was a leader and a model of perfection not merely in his home, but also in his community and school life. Douglas inevitably looked up to Cyril. He was my political mentor. He led by example, and I picked up political understanding by seeing what he did and said. But it was always impossible for Douglas to live up to Cyril's perfect example, and neither was it possible for the younger brother to even bask in the glow of his older brother's success. Cyril was surrounded by admirers who copied his dress and manner of speaking and hung on to his every word. They inadvertently formed yet another barrier between the two young brothers. So Douglas loved and admired Cyril, but was unable to be as close to him as he might have wished. A sadness lies behind his memory of the two brothers playing football together in the open land opposite their house on Matlaba Drive. The distance between the two brothers would grow when Douglas became politically aware at the age of 13 or 14, just at the time Cyril was leaving for boarding school in the north of the country. As Douglas became increasingly politically active, he was openly unhappy about his father's job. When he talked to his friends, he would sometimes call his home the police station. Later he would leave the country to take up arms as an ANC liberation fighter and would spend many years in exile in the Soviet Union, Zambia and Tanzania. Amidst the hardships of everyday life in western native township and the Soweto backwater of Chiawelo, the pervasive character of the apartheid ideologies of white supremacy and racial segregation would initially have been difficult to discern. For the son of a policeman, these signals Cyril did pick up would have been profoundly confusing. In 1960, in the immediate aftermath of the massacre of 69 demonstrators at Sharpville near Ferenachung, soldiers were stationed close to the Ramaphosa family home during the imposition of a state of emergency. In an unprovoked and inexplicable assault, a white soldier kicked the seven-year-old Cyril into a ditch when he was on his way to school. After being kicked like that, I felt bitter against white people, which took me a long time to overcome.
As Ramaphosa grew older, he would be exposed to the cruelty in municipal offices and soldiers and police on pass raids. Pass raids were carried out in the presence of children, resulting in the humiliation of parents in front of their families. It must have been a mixed blessing that such raids could not happen to the Ramaphosa family because of Samuel's position as a policeman. For Cyril, as a young child, the ethnic divisiveness that the NP government was promoting would have been more pervasive and must have left early scars. The character of ethnic difference, or what is pejoratively called tribalism, was very complex in the Soweto of Cyril's boyhood. In the western native township, diversity was experienced as an opportunity and a pleasure. Yet now the government was attempting to enforce a romantic European conception of African tribalism. Like misguided Victorian missionaries, they quite wrongly viewed Zulu, Tosa or Vendor people as timeless societies with distinct cultures whose history and inevitable fate it was to be at war with one another. In the notorious separate development era, Bantu stands were justified as political homes for ethnic groups and a deliberate state project of re-tribalization was launched. Soweto's primary schools were segregated by language and the government funded ethnic youth associations designed to foster ethnic awareness. The idea of timeless and natural tribes stands in stark contrast to modern scholarly views. For many scholars, tribalism was invented by missionaries and colonial administrators who created pseudo-languages out of dialects and persuaded the educated African elite to embrace invented traditions. Tribalism, in this view, was an instrument used by colonial administrators and their often inadvertent allies in the churches to divide and rule, maintain law and order, collect taxes and extract labor. But while tribalism, like all forms of social identity, is invented, it is not simply imposed by outsiders. Ethnicity in South Africa had to be built out of the real beliefs, interests and experiences of Africans. African intellectuals benefited from tribalism by interpreting tradition for the colonizers and interpreting colonial practice for traditional leaders. Ordinary people, moreover, found in shared dialects and origins a point of reference amid the turmoil of the migrant labor system. For people like Cyril's father, although ethnicity was not a touchstone of good or bad or friendship and enmity, it was natural to form a burial society for his homeboys and to meet with them more often and to talk with them more closely as a result of the history and upbringing they shared. Like most black South Africans, the Ramaphosa children would have developed a nuanced view of ethnicity. Their childhood friendships in western native township and the mutual comprehensibility of many African languages were constant reminders that the idea of timeless tribal division advanced by apartheid ideologues was artificial. At the same time, there was also pride in the history of their own people and a search for new ways to recover and develop the pre-colonial treasures of historical, linguistic and cultural diversity. The supposedly timeless homeland of Venda, the family would have been all too aware, was dominated by the Singo clan, which had invaded the area as recently as the start of the 18th century, subjugating the earlier inhabitants of the Sotpansberg. The pre-Singo ruling clans were sometimes killed and supplanted, but at other times changed their histories by introducing spurious historical allegiances to ingratiate themselves with their new rulers. 
Samuel and Ermute grew up in a complex political environment in which there were 28 Singo chiefdoms, the largest of which possessed 70 headmen, each of whom represented a different family name. The fluidity and vitality of the politics of the region from which the family came would have been quite naturally imparted to the young children. The reality they expressed was very much at variance with the apartheid government's crude characterization of the vendor as a timeless ahistorical tribe and exposed the erroneous character of the apartheid policy, which strictly demarcated one supposed ethnic group from another. In the wider apartheid state, segregationist doctrine was being supplanted by the notion of separate development, which entailed Africans residing in distinct ethnic homelands. The inspiration for this idea was decolonization in the British protectorates of Botswana, Lesotho and Swaziland. If African nationalists could press for the independence of these artificial and arbitrarily defined states, then why could equally artificial states not then be granted independence within South Africa itself? Separate development implied that every African must be assigned an ethnic group with its own site of self-government. Communities and families were divided by an apartheid bureaucracy that categorized an entire people in accordance with rules of descent. Once classified, three and a half million incorrectly located people were forcibly removed to the putative homelands or ethnically correct locations between 1960 and 1989. The homelands never came close to acquiring economic self-sufficiency. As a contribution to their viability, the South African government introduced incentives for business to locate on their borders. The major source of income, however, was always work in the core and now white economy. Bantustans were justified primarily as political homes for supposedly distinct African peoples. Ethnicity was the principal foundation for homeland self-government. An ethnic affiliation was intended to replace South African nationality as the basis of African political identification. This policy never secured much legitimacy among Africans who recognized it as an attempt to deprive them of their land and of the wealth to whose accumulation they had contributed. The poet and evangelist Chenuwani Farisani, who was later to become a major influence on Cyril's political thought, expressed it in this way. You pushed me from the fat of the country to the homelands. You fed me a bogus independence. You made me a citizen of a banana republic. You made babies my rulers. You banned me from my country of birth and called me citizen undetermined. For a member of a small African people from the north of the country, awareness of the sense of ethnic hierarchy possessed by some other Africans would have been sharp. Most evident would be the special character of Zulu identity, some manifestations of which confronted Cyril in the everyday life of Soweto. Zulu exceptionalism is partly a result of the celebration of the warrior race descended from Shaka that inflicted a serious defeat on the British Army in 1879. Despite a growing pan-Africanist tradition among political elites in the Natal ANC, ordinary Zulus would celebrate their unique monarchy and history of success in warfare, including great victories over the colonial enemy Britain.
Cyril Ramaphosa's family, we have seen, come from the Vendor-speaking area of what is today Limpopo province, far to the north of Johannesburg. During Ramaphosa's childhood, there were perhaps three million inhabitants of the Xhosa-speaking designated homelands and four million people in KwaZulu. Venda contained less than 350,000 people in total. The same pattern was reflected in the population of Greater Soweto at the time Cyril went to high school. Compared with around 400,000 Nguni language speakers, Tosa and Zulu, only around 100,000 were Tsonga speakers, a term that was then used officially to cover both Shangan and Venda tongues. It was not the numerical minority of the Venda-speaking population that would have been difficult for Ramaphosa's young mind to embrace, but rather the stigma that attached to this ethnic group. To be Venda, Shangan or Tsonga in the Soweto of Ramaphosa's youth was all too often to be the object of ridicule and disdain. In part, this was because members of these groups were viewed as linked to the rural in a Soweto that was modern and proud to be modern. Zulu speakers, by contrast, possessed an elaborate mythology in which they had vanquished all comers in the creation of their 19th century empire. They also had an extended history of urban residence and employment that gave them the confidence to ridicule the rural and backward newcomers. Zulu speakers would typically pretend to be unable to differentiate the minor African languages from one another, or, even more insultingly, on occasion they simply could not do so. In Cyril's young world, the apartheid government encouraged ethnic division as part of its wider retribalization strategy. Cyril was educated in a Venda primary school, Chilitsi primary, until the age of 14. Groups of promising young leaders were selected and taken on character-building camps in which teachers instilled the importance of tribe and culture. White oppressors, who spoke English and Afrikaans, were in most respects invisible. By contrast, when walking through any neighborhood outside Chiavelo, Ramaphosa and his friends might be subject to jokes in which it was the vendor or the shangan who was always the buffoon or the ugly one. Among many Africans, moreover, Cyril's home language and his social and historical roots were the objects of disdain. Young people in Chiavelo, whether songa or vendor speaking, were often eager to learn Zulu or Tosa, in addition to English and Afrikaans, and in this way they partly disavowed their own ethnic heritage. Yet, even after this act of humiliation, recent arrivals from the north would sometimes be mocked because their accents betrayed them. At the same time, members of the smaller ethnic groups possessed a corresponding capacity to move easily between different languages and to adapt easily to the cultural particularities of others. Like his father, Cyril was able to transcend ethnic divides that sometimes constrained members of the larger Zulu and Tosa communities. The stability and strength of Ramaphosa's family were underpinned by the organized religion that his parents embraced enthusiastically. In the 1960s, the church's influence was magnified because competing vehicles for political mobilization had been driven underground. The churches were partly international in organization and orientation, and they unevenly encouraged education and self-education. Cyril's experiences with the church and its teachings were to be decisive in his political and intellectual formation. 
Lutheran missionaries had been exceptionally active in the north of South Africa in the colonial era, and the vendor speakers of the former Transvaal were overwhelmingly evangelized by them. Samuel and Edmute, both Lutherans from childhood, became staunch members of the Chiavello Lutheran congregation. Cyril's father had been shaped by his own conservative religious upbringing at Kalava's mission station in the far north of the country. His mother remained a bastion of the local Lutheran church until her death in 2001. It was a resolution of conflicts between religious and political imperatives that lay at the heart of the younger Cyril Ramaphosa's political development. For Lutherans like the Ramaphosa family, it was impossible to compartmentalize the freedom of a human being into separate religious and earthly components. Spiritual liberation and political justice were simply different aspects of the same whole. Moreover, Martin Luther's teachings did not allow a person to acquire righteousness before God through personal striving. Rather, Luther believed that one had to be accounted and then made righteous by God's grace, which believers received only through faith. Lutheran teachings could potentially carry either radical or conservative implications. It was a conservative reading of his religious duty, however, that left an imprint in Cyril's early years. The Lutheran World Federation, to which the Ramaphosa family's congregation belonged, was hierarchical and bishop-dominated, and during Cyril's childhood it propagated an intensely conservative theology. Writing at the beginning of the 16th century, Luther argued that man was unable to understand the will of God, but instead idolized his own reason in the kingdom of the world that is also Satan's kingdom. God has created a spiritual government or priesthood of believers for Christians to battle against Satan, but he has also created temporal or secular government to prevent men from tearing one apart as Satan's influence would otherwise lead them to do. The relationship between God and the government of the world is riven with theological ambiguity. An earthly ruler could never induce inner righteousness, which is purely a gift of God. However, secular government is given by God, and so it must be treated as a divine gift. This imposes an obligation on believers to accept public office, to obey the state, and indeed to go beyond their duties to obey the law. If rulers violate God's law, a matter that men can determine by reflecting on the scriptures, believers are obliged not to obey. No earthly person or law has authority over the conscience of a true Christian. But there is no right to use violence against others, not even those who are abusing office. The office of governor is divinely ordained, and the sword is reserved for rulers. Although Lutheran teachings, as we shall see, are also capable of radical interpretation, the church of Cyril's parents instilled in him respect for the institutions of government. This text from St. Paul's letter to the Romans, 13 verses 1 to 7, had special authority. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God, the powers that be ordained of God. Whosoever, therefore, resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation.
For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger, to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor.